We've all seen the incredible horse and rider combinations as the backbone of our sport. But what about everything else that makes the equestrian world tick? From the everyday grind to the world-class professional, join the Equestrian Podcast as we talk about every equestrian discipline in a way that hasn't been done before. Now here's your host, rider, trainer, and influencer behind my equestrian style, Bethany Lee. Hello and welcome to the Equestrian Podcast. I'm your host, Bethany Lee, and this is episode 121. Our guest today is so impressive and I could honestly spend hours listening to his stories. He is the older brother to two other international show jumping talents. One of his top accolades is he was selected as the alternate on the show jumping team for the 1980 Olympic Games in Moscow. He rides and competes near his family farm in New Jersey, but he really spends a lot of time and dedication to his business, Leon Equestrian. Law. Not only is he an amazing equestrian, but he has the most impressive list of degrees. He holds a JD from Columbia University School of Law, an MD from New York Medical College, an MBA from Columbia Business School, and a BA from the University of Virginia. I told you he was remarkable. So without further ado, I would love for you to hear from our guest today, Armand Leone. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. I would love to hear how you first got into the horse world. Wow, that's uh, taking me back a few years. What am I, 63? <laughs> They're taking me back about 55 uh, years. Let's hear it. Well, to be honest with you, it's my mother's fault. She was a New York City girl. And her father was in the U.S. Cavalry in World War One, And she used to go for horse rides around Central Park, you know. And so she eventually married a country guy. My dad and moved out to New Jersey. And along the way, I was the oldest of three boys, ultimately. She wanted the boys to learn how to ride. Yeah. So we started taking riding lessons. And uh, kind of went from there, right, in local Jersey for many years. Started, you know, with a riding school. And then a real first plunge, and to give you an idea of how little we knew, <laughs> my parents had, I must have been like a seven, five, and three, the, the ages of the three of us. They went down to Lister Hall Farm in Pennsylvania to Jean uh, DuPont, Lister Hall, and bought three Welch ponies. We went into Welch ponies. <laughs> they bought a three-year-old, a two-year-old, and a one-year-old, and said, here you go, boys. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Anyway, from there we got a few more. We were lucky enough to meet a wonderful man, Sullivan Davis, who was in Hanover, New Jersey, who we trained with, and he was our mentor. And I say this was, and Dave was one of the premier black horsemen that came out of the fifties and sixties. An incredible man, always like a surrogate dad with us. Hmm. But he taught us about horses. And as you can guess, with a three-year-old, two-year-old, and a one-year-old yearling, we had to learn how to lead them, lunge them, long line them, break them to cart, break them to saddle, teach them to jump. Wow. And I will tell you that culminated ultimately with, before we moved on to the real horses, was always the National Eastern Welch Pony Show. And there would be a ride, drive, and jump class. So we started with ponies. Yes, a lot of them were like the Thelwell ponies, you know, boop, 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 fall off, boop, 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 yep. fall off, get back on, get back on. That's what happened. And then, you know, 
After that, there was originally the three small ponies, then there was some large ponies, and then there was, I had a junior hunter and a junior jumper. And, but it was really a family farm. My parents bought a farm, and we did a lot of it until my last year of junior. Then we moved on to the, the top circuit. We moved on to George Morris as a trainer. And, you know, it was a whole different, whole different era at that junction. At that point, when you made that transition, what were some maybe changes that you experienced in your everyday riding and your discipline and, you know, just your overall ability? Sure. Well, I'll tell you one joke first, which was <laughs> I didn't go to the army. My father said we didn't have to go in the army because we rode with George and Bert. So, you know, <laughs> okay, I get it. He's right. The biggest thing for me, I was a country rider. I mean, you know, our Artie Hawkins used to call me something about like a farmer. <laughs> counting strides, counting the, the counting yeah. was totally new for me. And it was in my last year of junior that I made the switch. So that was very big for me, gaining insight into the whole issue of counting strides. Mm. You know, back, sorry, several in the day, you had they'd set the hunter course in the ring, there'd be a posted order, there'd be three classes, and the positions would rotate. You didn't know the distance between the fences. You didn't get the chance to walk the course. Hmm. You kind of eyeballed it. Yeah. And then, but then, okay, so striding was expensive. But for me, learning how to count was the biggest change. And I got to tell you, it took me a while to get it down because I was so nervous about counting. On the landing, I'd say one. Problem is, is that's zero. <laughs> okay. So if you're doing a four stride line, and you're looking at three. Mm-hmm. It's looking very long. <laughs> so I eventually figured that out. Like, oh, okay, okay. But, you know, that was the biggest change going to quote the big leagues for me. Yeah, yeah. How did that change your horse show schedule? Well, now you're starting to, to show at a distance, okay? Now, once you go up to the national circuit, now you're going to Florida, which back then was four or five weeks max. Jacksonville, Cowboy. Mm-hmm. Palmetto and then Tampa. You know, you're going to Chagrin. You'd be going to uh, Lake Placid, Atitash. We did some trips out to California. So the the competition went from regional to national with all the logistics that are involved. Mm -hmm. Wow. When you were uh, growing up riding at the junior level, what are some kind of moments that really stick out on your head in your in your memory as you know like really high points in your riding? Oh, oh high points? <laughs> yeah, let's hear let's hear the high point. We'll get to the the challenging moments. <laughs> I was gonna say it's a junior falling off a Devin at the wall. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> um, I would say for me as a junior, and I only really had a year competing when I was 17 as a junior at the top level. Mm-hmm. Uh, but leading up to that year was I had a little local thoroughbred hunter. We rode thoroughbreds back then. Uh-huh. And I got her to qualify for the garden. Nice. The year before when I went to George. And that to me was huge. You know, back then we didn't have videos really. They were maybe super eight, you know, filming. But there would always be this show for toddlers. And after the show, you'd get your pictures, you know, with proof stamped on them in the mail to look at. So you'd show and you'd always look and see what your pictures were like and how the heels were in the eyes and the back. And, and so ultimately, I got a nice picture of my horse at Madison Square Garden in my next selection. And that, to me, having gotten there on my own, I'm actually quite proud of. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. After that, I would say my last year, and again, this is probably going to sound crazy, 
I had a four-year-old, okay? She showed small junior equitation green confirmation. Hmm. She qualified for the garden, first year green confirmation, large junior hunter, so she was large junior hunter, and, and I qualified for the McCoy. So I'm riding a four-year-old thoroughbred. Wow. In these divisions. Now, okay, we go round now. We're going, back then, okay, that was, you, you needed to be a little bit slick to make it happen because they're green, but that was the game. Right. So after that, then I kind of went into the amateur hunters for a little bit. Then I went into, it was going into the jumpers. And I came out of that. And that, that was a different stage. I was only in the junior scene there for about a year and a half. Had you done a lot of jumpers or kind of that mode of riding much as a junior? Or was that kind of fresh for you after transitioning into um, an adult amateur? Well, let's be serious. You have three boys riding on a farm <laughs> and a bunch of ponies. How high can we jump? <laughs> you were doing jumpers every day. <laughs> falls off, knocks it down, or, or, or stops. <laughs> I, I mean... We jumped, man. That was and that was fun. That was the fun of it. Yeah, you know. So we would jump. But now I'm not talking form. You know, should the, the all the should jumping form, but jumping. We were boys, man. We were playing hockey, football. Yeah, we were jumping, man. Mm-hmm. So you know, jumping was always something we did. And of course, you're probably who can go fastest and all that. I, okay, cool. Yeah. But the hunters, though, ultimately, as we got into the hunters. We did focus on the equitation and the form. And near the end, my brothers got a little bit involved with junior jumpers. I more hooked in more in the preliminaries and you know, intermediate amateur jumper when I came out of juniors. But yeah, I know we used to jump a lot. You know, we had an outside course at home. We built all sorts of stuff. The barrel game, you know, three barrels down the two barrels down the one barrel. I mean, a 55 gallon drum turning on it. It's in a whole nine yards. <laughs> Did you compete a lot with your brothers? Like, were you guys competitive with each other? Did you show against each other a lot? What did, what was that dynamic like? We were actually separated enough in terms of ages and divisions that we rarely rode in the same class. Okay. Although that changed later on in the Grand Prix. Yeah. So there was no direct competition like that. Obviously, nobody's counting, but everybody's, you know, tracking, right? Uh, uh-huh. People are doing I would say probably the more competition, which is an interesting thing to talk about, was competition amongst each other for horses. Yeah. Actually, or not even if there were that many, but we ride differently with different personalities. I would say the competition for ideas was fierce until we learned how to deal with that. What do I mean? Riding's a little bit like a religion. This is, I oh, this is what I do. And this is how I do this with this horse. And I want to do this, that, that. Mm-hmm. It's like, that's your belief. That's what you do. And it makes sense for you within the constructs of, you know, general equitation. But what I do with a horse and what you do with a horse and the way we would go about it and the order we would do it, not going to be the same. Mm-hmm. And with three brothers, one kind of has a strength and does it this way, one does it that way. So you would, oh, don't do that. You should be doing this. Oh, no, you don't know what you're talking about. So the disagreements that would come up when we were younger about how to manage a horse would create some competition. Yeah. Until you realize and recognize, like religion, you need to have religious tolerance. And by that, I mean, you know something, there's more than one way to achieve something. As long as you're internally consistent within a certain you know, range of acceptable methods, you can be successful. 
So you may have your approach to you like to do cavaletti work and this and that and mm-hmm. and and I might like to do you know piano gymnastics more or whatever it might be. Okay, fine. I'm there to help you if you ask. Okay, I'm there. I'm not there to tell you what to do. And we, we got to that point where we stopped telling each other what we thought they should do mm-hmm. and say, "What can I do?" Yeah. When you're asked the question, "What do you think?" that's a different story. Yeah. It took many years to get there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I bet. I mean, that dynamic had to have been fun, but also bring some challenges to it as well. I like to ride them in snapples, the whole line, especially full cheeks, but snapples, they're broken, joined in the middle. Okay. Mm -hmm. Smooth, twisted, sharp twist, corkscrew, double up. And we're gagged. I don't really like poems. My brothers had some great success with poems. Yeah. Okay. Just changes. So anyway, that competition for ideas was difficult for us to control initially. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, we, we, we did. Tell me a little bit. Take me back to the weeks and months leading up to the 1980 Olympic Games. Sure. For me, you know, that was a bittersweet experience yeah. uh, because we boycotted the Olympics. Russia invaded Afghanistan, so Jimmy Carter, you know, we boycotted the Moscow Olympics. You know, I was, I was very fortunate. I was young. I had just come up with two horses. There were the Olympic trials. I ended up fifth. And I'll be dead honest, Conrad Homefeld had no desire to go to the alternate Olympics, so he stayed home, and I had a spot. Yeah. So... You know, that was the first time I competed in Nations Cup. I'd gone overseas with George before and did a private tour. But, you know, in the months leading up to that, I bought a new horse. My parents bought a new horse. Now, this is worth going through briefly. Went to Europe. We bought this great horse from Paul Schockham, your German horse. Oh, wow. This, <laughs> you know, and I've been doing well with my thoroughbred, so it comes over afar and we start competing. And, you know, I'm out there riding. He's beautiful, riding a nice twisted snap, a little spur, dot, dot, dot. Fourth in the first Grand Prix, sixth in the next one. And then we went to Jacksonville in the stadium at night. And I went out there in my pretty nice red jacket and everything, and a little snap, going around. And I got a little deep to the triple, and he stopped. Okay. So I took my stick, and I just hit him on the shoulder. He took off! <laughs> took off! I couldn't stop him! Oh. Couldn't do anything. Couldn't turn him. Couldn't get the jump. Oh, you got my god! Here, you've asked your parents <laughs> to spend all this money. You got to. You can't even ride. Oh my gosh! So, long story short, we had a little bit of it. We worked through it as best we could that night. Went to Tampa, and I'm riding. Dropped down to the amateurs. I can't get him to go past the in gate. Jacking up on me. Da 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 da. Well, that's pretty depressing. But you know something, we made it. We, and I'll give George credit for this. He said, "No, we're gonna we're gonna work through this." So it, it wasn't pretty, but the bit got stepped up, the spur got stepped up, the attitude got stepped up, and I'm gonna tell you the crux of that was I got him going around the ring. So we went to the Grand Prix <laughs> the last week of Tampa. Now you may not remember Tampa, but there's a low railing around the whole ring, the main mm-hmm. ring, and there's that tower of power. Anyway, there was a triple set up going directly away from the in-gate. Big axer, vertical axer. 
came around the in gate because the right turn to it, and I'm making him go, you're going to go, and I'm, I'm driving it forward. And he just veered left and jumped out of the ring. <gasps> jumped out of the ring. Oh, my People God. were four or five deep. They just, it was like the Red Sea parted. <laughs> but he had the stupid, I mean, the horse. He locked up, jumped out. The minute he got out of the ring, he, he relaxed. Mm. I couldn't go back over to the in gate. So I jumped back in. <laughs> <laughs> and then I jumped into the combination. Oh. And then I went back to the tackle and cried. Mm. How could I do this to my parents and my family? Yeah. They bought this horse. This was supposed to be the Olympic horse. You're gonna, right. Right? Well, anyway, back then there was a lot of camaraderie. And I will credit Rodney Jenkins for coming to support, working with me, George for sticking through it. And over the next month, that horse, Wallenstein, and I came to terms. Mm-hmm. An acceptable relationship. Such that I was able to get ribbons in the Grand Prix at Valley Forge in May. I was able to show him in the Olympic trials. Okay, but I qualified on my other horse, a thoroughbred, a 15 2 hand thoroughbred encore. Wow. Anyway, qualified for the team, went to Europe, and then Wallenstein at that point became my number one horse. And he jumped double clears in Dublin, and double clears in New York later that year, jumped, I want to say, clearing for in Paris, won the Puissance in Wembley at seven foot. So you talk about going from the depths of despair, but working your way out of it to somewhere. That's the months leading up to 1980. All the Rotterdam. Wow. Um, It was not a short thing. Yeah. As we are jumping into the winter horse show season, have you ever spent hours on Facebook looking for boarding options that fit your needs and chasing after people to make everything happen every year? Artemis wants you to spend more time riding than online. Artemis is an all-in-one tailored platform for competitive riders on the go. Use Artemis to make boarding reservations, purchase and lease show horses, view vet records, and utilize vetted photographers along with other equine services. You will love Artemis's streamlined approach in serving each discipline. They do all the hard work up front in supplementing the due diligence process and everything you need is in one place. Artemis has already launched its hunter jumper service and next up will be dressage and polo. For the trainers out there, Artemis also offers a service called Virtual Rain that is live right now. It's a must-have management tool for every trainer to schedule lessons, keep track of clients' horses, supplements, and more. So check all of this out at their website, artemisequestrian.club. That's Artemis, A-R-T-E-M-I-S, equestrian.club. Thank you so much, Artemis. Let's get back to the episode. What was the what was the change for that horse rider partnership? Do you feel where where things started clicking? Well, understanding first of all the European horse, especially the German horse, yeah, is a is a different personality. The soft, sensitive thoroughbred is not that. Now, yeah. there's more blood in them now of it. Okay, right. So I hate to say it; it's going to sound bad. With a parent and a child. A parent can't be the child's friend. They've got to be the parent. In riding this horse or European horse, that horse, I want to speak for everybody. We couldn't be friends. Yeah. We could have a wonderful relationship. But 
we had to establish mutual respect. Mm-hmm. And then life was great for about, uh, you want to something interesting? Hmm. That was 1980. Da-da-da-da-da. About 1986, seven, I got on other things. And my brother Mark was going to ride the horse. Okay. And he was just, he's a wonderful rider. He's soft, he's smooth, he's great timing, sweet. And he was going great with that horse until he got in, he went, took him to a, a puissance. And the second round came down nice like a hunter, and the horse stopped. Hmm. It was like all the way back to 1980 again. Wow. The horse came back up. My point is this. You have to understand with certain horses and temperaments, it's a constant, uh, like an alcoholic, they get into trouble to go back to drinking. Yeah. A horse that's a stopper, you always have to remember that if they get, they can revert their quick. Anyway, so that point is, here's a horse, and I saw, you know, in Europe, some riders having difficulty with, oh, I can do that. Mm-hmm. The horse that I learned, whoa, you better, you have to have some rules. And then the two of us came from actual rock bottom up to a very successful European tour, a number of very successful years competing. And as long as we each respected each other, mm-hmm. it was fun. Yeah. How, what, what kind of things were you doing or exercises or just mindset shifts that you felt like you got each other's respect? Between my brothers, you mean? No, between you and your horse. Ah. <laughs> we yeah. could go that way too. No, no, no. I would say this. A rider, as they get more developed, has their own internal integrated approach and system. Uh-huh that fits their style and their personality. However, you have a toolbox of things you have learned over the years from other very good riders or trainers. Mm -hmm. And in that toolbox, there's everything from gymnastic exercises to big issues to flat exercises to this or how to deal with that. And you need to know when to go into that toolbox and pull out. So all sorts of different things in, in that toolbox, and I'll just go to spectrum. My brothers and I did a clinic with Hans Winkler, Gladstone, had to be the late 70s or 80s, early 80s. And he set up a 16-foot in and out, reverse oxer, two rails, a reverse oxer to a vertical, oh, sorry, a pole in front. So he had a pole, nine feet, a reverse oxer, 16 feet to a vertical. Uh-huh. And he made it jump it forwards and backwards, one stride. The first time through, they bounce it, they muck it out. Yeah. Then he's amazing. They start putting in a stride. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, now I haven't used that in a long time. We've talked about it. I'd like to show my boys that someday. Yeah. Another toolbox kit, Frank Chapeau, someone who I admire both as a horseman and a coach. And I think, unfortunately, he's underappreciated in the big scheme of things. But what a great rider, great man. And here's his approach. The horse has, you know, has to do the work. Okay, so teach your horse how to be long, how to be short. The angles that he would practice, the concept, you're not teaching a horse to jump each specific jump, but they know when you're pointing them to a jump. Mm-hmm. If your seat is directing them to that jump, they go. So it, it's a lot easier. Frank, if you teach your horse how to handle things, 
as opposed to you micromanaging everything, wow, you do a lot better. Mm-hmm. Think of how Jen Twist used to go. Greg's horse. Sorry. Why am I blanking? Oh. Um... Um, Jen. Why? Wow, this is terrible. I'm embarrassed on the podcast. <laughs> but anyway, if you ever watch Frank Fry Jen Twist, mm-hmm. and then you watch actually that approach, it's galloping to the jump, coming to the jump. Frank always said, most riders lose jump offs going to the first fence. Yeah. Ride at the first fence as hard as you're going to ride at the last fence. Little things like that mm-hmm. are in your toolbox. Yeah, so, definitely. Something that I feel like is very interesting and, uh, and that's part of your story is your job and your education. You have several degrees and I would love to hear more about Leon Equestrian Law. Sure. You know, I'm an attorney for a long time and I rode for a long time. The only thing I know more about law, I know more about horses than about law, but I know a lot about both. Mm-hmm. And I also had spent enough time dealing with legal issues and horses of my own. Yeah. I paid enough to learn about equine law by paying other attorneys along the way. Yeah. Okay? At a certain point, I said, you know something? I'd like to be able to help equestrians, in particular professionals, with issues they deal with that come up legally. You know, I would say most of the time, I find it's more important to help consult with people and talk through potential solutions based on my experience than acting as a, a, their attorney. In other words, I don't like being paid for my time to tell people things that are part of, you know, uh, of my experience. I, I feel funny. I have a, I, my other legal business, which is personal injury medical malpractice. I'm happy making my money there. Yeah. But the Leona Equestrian Law, I feel like if I can be a resource for people that are often beside them because they don't know what's happening or they're getting sued and what's the what's the risk and how do I deal? And, you know, I sold this horse, everything was fine. Now I'm getting sued. Or, you know, I bought this horse and it was supposed to have four legs. It had three. Hmm. You know? Yep. The big problem is this. With horses, if a horse... The, you have to be careful not to spend more than the value of the horse litigating for it or litigating over an issue. If there's a $30,000 claim of some time or issue, you don't want to spend $50,000 to litigate it and win 30. Yeah. So I try to help people by keeping them out of problems as much as I can. Once they get into it, if someone's being sued, then I don't mind representing them and defending them mm-hmm. because you have to. I mean, you know, unfortunately, it's very easy for people who don't know horses to, and because they don't understand horses and the business, want to sue people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's remember, if you want to buy, you don't buy a horse with anything but risk money, money you can afford to lose. Yeah. If you're an amateur or because you know something, I'm sorry, they break. I don't care if you bet a horse and it bets absolutely perfectly. They can go away next week. Yeah. I've also owned horses and won many classes with horses that the vet said, oh, I can't, I can't pass this horse. Mm-hmm. So, but again, 
if you're a non-horse person, well, the bet said he was you know, 100% sound. Right. What do you mean he's lame? Well, that's horses. Yeah. Managing horses is not like a motorcycle. You know, you can't just run them and fill the tank up again and go run them again. They break. Mm-hmm. Management, the recipe is as much a part of the success as, as the horse. Definitely. With your past and all of your expertise in riding and, and the knowledge that you've gained toward equestrian law, along with your brothers, you have three boys. Have they all been involved in riding at one point? I know your youngest currently rides. What is that dynamic like as far as their, if, if any aspirations they might have within the equestrian industry? Well, my oldest two did it enough to say they rode, but they don't do it anymore. Yeah. That's fine. The youngest, who's the biggest, is actually pretty good at it. We'll see where it goes. I mean, he's interested in school and he's doing the schoolwork. I think the most rewarding part of it for me is, because I'm a little older now, I'm now living on a farm as opposed to, you know, back in the day. We start, to, we have some young horses here and he's learning what a foal's like. Hmm. And he's going to learn next year how to lunge the, you know, take the yearling and, and teach it how to lunge a bit. And then the next year how to long line it. And, you know, getting down, going out to the field and bringing them in, you know, all those parts of, of the horse sport that are, that, that really is where the gold is. Seeing a horse grow up, seeing a horse learn, yeah. understanding them, taking them to places they haven't been before, you know? So I'm getting to share with him those parts of my horse experience that you can't, you can't teach somebody everything. You have to learn it. They've got to be part of it. They've yeah. got to feel it, right? Right. So that's really cool. You know, the sport today, as long as he's able to enjoy riding and enjoy the, the relationship with the horse, that's a home run. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, that is a big win for sure. Tell me a little bit about an area of the industry that you are super passionate about that you feel like the rest of the equestrian community either doesn't know a lot about or doesn't talk that much about. You know, there's something I'm very passionate about, but as I say that, I've also not done enough with it as I should have, okay? And I think para-equestrian and riding for uh, handicapped people is huge. Mm -hmm. Physical and cognitively impaired people, autistic. And having seen a little bit, when I was lucky enough to be part of the International High Performance Division and stuff, working with the para-equestrian and even locally here, we do some work. There's a, you know, a, a ride for the handicap here. I think that is so beautiful to see people that have trouble relating with the world or people that through a horse, all of a sudden they're connected. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, 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 I guess I'm passionate insofar as I'm always marveled by it. And I'm a little disappointed I haven't done more, but as I get a little older, I, I would like to come around to that. And the other reason I think that's important is I think power equestrian can actually make a connection with the general public. Very hard for people, to, the general people to feel good about oh, multi-million dollar horses doing this and the right. dressage ring and all the clap, clap, clap and the champagne and the little code, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but seeing a kid's face light up when the horse is walking or the people that, you know, 
are physically disabled, all of a sudden they've got a body. Mm -hmm. So I don't think there's enough of that recognition in our sport. I'd like to see more of it down the road. I'd like to help make that more visible. Yeah. What, what do you feel like are some steps that you could take to, you know, do more within that area of the industry or to raise awareness toward it? Because it definitely is, I mean, it's, it's becoming more and more, you know, apparent and part of the industry, but it's definitely an area that I feel like so many more people could be a part of and showcase and love and, and be a part of it from, you know, a helping standpoint, but also spread the word and, and get more people involved. I think it needs to be covered by insurance. Hmm. It's healthcare, you know, and that's the thing, you know, the, the hypotherapy, they'll do aqua therapy, other types of things. This type of therapy if it was covered by health insurance would now have a, a, a financial basis to, to grow. Mm-hmm. Okay, if it's always an out-of-pocket thing, it's harder, or a volunteer thing, it's harder. But that, to me, I think would be the biggest advance for power equestrian and handicap riding if it was recognized for the therapy that it is and the good that it does. Absolutely, yeah. I I got to see that firsthand. I have nephews on the spectrum who um, were doing some hippotherapy and wouldn't wouldn't talk in day-to-day life, but could speak in like full sentences when they were on a horse. Like just, you know, you just like, you can't make that stuff up, but it's just unbelievable. The power of, you know, like being on a horse and and what they can do. It's just absolutely incredible. So to round out that thought, now that I'm back down on the farm and about two miles down the road, there's a riding with heart going. Nice. Handicap riding place. You know, I'm going to try to, I'll try to support as we get into the spring because it's too cold now with COVID. Right. to volunteer there and, and be a little more involved there. And then, you know, I, every now and then I try to team up with some people in the healthcare industry that are talking about insurance benefits. And, mm. you know, I've tried to make the pitch for hippotherapy, equine therapy for people. But, yeah. you know, I got to tell you, having been very fortunate, I feel I'm most fortunate now to be back down on the ground at home with my kid riding, we go to a local show. Mm-hmm. We have a young horse. There's this down the road with the riding with heart. And, you know, simpler is better. I'm loving it. Yeah. That's amazing. And I think especially your point of view is so valuable because you've experienced almost like both ends of the of the spectrum in terms of riding and that you are, I, I think, being content where you are is such a a powerful and positive thing and that you're able to find just the, you know, the proper perspective for, for where you're at and all the things that you have learned over the years that you can be, you know, implementing in this, in this phase is so cool to see. And I would just have, you know, competition's great and I have some great times. Okay. But at the end of the day, it's a treadmill. And sometimes the competition and the personal cost, financial cost, and time cost to, to, to pursue that can, can make it hard to stay in touch with the, the ultimate human horse relationship underneath, you know, because of a certain artificiality that creeps in there that right. it's beautiful. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's about the relationship with the horse, each of you growing together. The next day, a little bit more 
together doing things a little bit better. Mm-hmm. That's really, that's the, the, the gold. Mm-hmm. The ribbon, the gold medal, no, that's not where it's at. That's fun. Yeah. <laughs> I'll give you that. Yeah. But that's not what you, you know, that's not really what's the heart of it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's so, this sport, it's so easy to lose sight of that. But that really is, that's the core of riding. And that's why everyone starts. So to make a long story, come back to the last thing. I started earlier about what was my junior year sticks out is uh-huh. falling off at the wall at Devon. And you want to know what another big accomplishment was? Not falling off at the wall at Devon. <laughs> 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 you win some, you lose some. <laughs> oh, amazing well thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast i think your story is amazing and i love how you i know you you say you don't feel like you've done enough but i feel like you have been such a big part of the industry and have shared so much of your knowledge so i really appreciate it and i wish you all the best All right. That is all I have for you today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please take a minute and write a review on iTunes. I would so appreciate it. It helps people like you find the podcast and it helps me get some killer guests. Thank you so much. And I will talk to you next week.